Kevin Sharkey. Sharkey, <laughs> I'm about to get all up in your biz. Are you ready? I think so, yeah. As ready as I'll ever be. So, uh, adopted as a baby, an orphan at one point, a fisherman, an Irish dancer, a presidential candidate, and now one of, or the most, I would say, successful artists in Ireland. Oh, don't let me forget. Mm-hmm. An actor on Father Ted. No, 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 no. I just had one line in Father Ted. They, they <laughs> repeated that often. People think I'm an actor. Uh, they, yeah, it's crazy. They, they keep repeating it and people will say, oh, that's the actor. Say, no, no. I was never really an actor. That was just somebody offered me the job and I, uh, they offered me a thousand pounds to do one line. So I thought even though I had to dress up as a priest, that was difficult. But um, <laughs> it was worth it. And uh, I'm glad it was a funny line because they, they still repeat it. Yeah. But all the other things I did, you know, we were talking earlier about you know, a passion for things. And I think sometimes my route was always, if I thought I wanted to do something, I'd try it. And if I didn't like it, I knew that wasn't the thing, so I could put it down and walk away. The worst case scenario was not trying things and then in the back of your mind thinking, maybe that's the one I should have done. And as it happened, all the things I tried, all the things I did, in the background I was painting from, I was a child, but I had no comprehension as to that could become a career. I'd never been to a gallery, I'd never been to an exhibition, I'd never seen paintings. So it was a very private thing and I didn't realize until I'd exhausted all the others from, you know, being a photographer and a songwriter that really the one thing I always did and would continue to do, paid for or not, without the promise of stardom or not, was art and painting. And it was, I was very lucky to meet somebody about 30 years ago who knew everything about art. I never knew much, and I still really am not that interested in the world of art, certainly not the history of art, but I love to paint. And this guy convinced me that I should, uh, he saw my paintings. I used to throw, I used to throw them away for years, and then I used to hide them because I was embarrassed, because I used to be a fisherman, so you, <laughs> you tell your mates you're an artist, they're going to take the piss. <laughs> but this particular guy saw them and got very excited and said to me, I'll never forget, he said, uh, you're a good singer. He said, but you're a fucking great artist. You've got to be an artist. And that was... The moment that I thought, well, you know, I'll give it a go. And that was over 10,000 paintings ago. So he saw something that I couldn't even comprehend. He was a smart guy. Wow. It's just so amazing. I think if you follow your passion, that the universe will open up opportunities for you. But take me back. You told me about, what. take me back to your childhood when you, when you were born, how that happened and how you ended up. Because you have a fascinating story of that first time the paintbrush got into your hands and there was a story behind it in terms mm-hmm. of being back. So take me back to your childhood. Well, I, w- I was, uh, my mother was from Dublin. She was Irish and my father was Nigerian. He was at a student at the Royal, Ma- Royal College of Surgeons in Stevens Green. And uh, I, they didn't have a long relationship, but obviously it was long enough for me to be conceived. And uh, when I was born, I was born in the mother and baby's uh, nursing home, St. Patrick's on the Navin Road. So in those days, society, parents, families were embarrassed by unwanted pregnancies. So the, the sinner or the loose woman um, or the girl who'd led him astray had to be put somewhere that would save blushes. And it was sponsored by the government. It was sponsored by the families. It was sponsored by the church. And those girls really had no option. And especially if you're going to have a black baby in 1961. I was just going to say there. I mean, the reality is like having a baby back then out of wedlock, number one. Mm. But number two, you're having a black, a black baby, baby. Mother of God. Yeah. God saves and blesses. <laughs> no, but... Uh, and, and 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 she um, may, probably didn't have a lot of options at that time. Um, 
But uh, so she she gave me up for adoption at six months, and the Sharkey family from Donegal, Kelly Beggs, they adopted me, and they had six kids of their own at that stage. Um, and my time there wasn't, uh, you know, people say, though there were happy moments, and yeah, there were, but it's the traumatic ones that stay with you. Mm. It's like when you read comments online; it's the negative ones that make you go, "Hang on a minute," and you 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 just gloss past all the good ones. So that's human nature a bit, but um. And at 12 and a half then, they decided they didn't want me anymore, so they sent me back into the care system, which for a kid who spent years wanting to be part of a family, wanting to accept this as your real family, um, I did that around about nine, funny enough, because I, I previously was thinking, when I was a kid, I'd never smile in photographs because I was worried that if my real mother ever saw me smiling in a photograph, that she, would, uh, she wouldn't come and rescue me. So my father, my adoptive father, would go, lose his mind screaming at me to smile and smile. And and as a child, when an adult is screaming, you fucking little black bastard, smile or I'll fucking kill you, you're traumatized to such a point that even though the threat is there, you're still in your, as a, as a three and a half year old child, you've somehow worked out that this is not a safe place to be. So much so that you will challenge an adult not to smile just in case your mother thinks you're happy and doesn't come to get you. So there was my journey of being accepted, accepting them as my real family. But at 12 and a half, when they sent me back to the orphanage, it was almost overnight. So you lose everything. You lost your friends, your sisters, your bed, your teddy bear, your dog. And I was deeply, deeply traumatized. I didn't know that then. I just cried. Why? Do you know? Do you have? Because like you've kept their name, mm. right? Mm. You've kept the name Sharky. Maybe that's because that's kind of part of your identity. You can tell me. But why did they give you back? Why? Do you have any idea? Oh, <laughs> yes, I do. Hundred um, percent. I think pretty much soon after I was adopted, my mother, my particular my birth, my adopted mother. She, as a child, a non-verbal child, I was the cutest little thing you'd ever seen. You were non-verbal. Well, I say non-verbal. Um, I wasn't able to say no. I wasn't able to talk back. And so I was compliant, as children are. Okay, and my mother um, loved to show me off because, remember, I was the only black child anyone had ever seen, not just one or two. I, it was me. That was it. The family was white. The town were white. So I was kind of like a little E.T. E character in that... They, you know, people would come up and rub your hair or touch your skin. And mostly they were charming and, and genuine and curious. Um, but they were also very accepting. And for an adopted child to feel that, it's a very, very powerful emotion because you're out of place being adopted, but you're certainly out of place being the only black kid in town. So my my mother, to the point that I, I, I was able to be the cute baby was very much on board and I asked her years later why did she adopt me and she said because I wanted people to think I was a good person and that's a hell of a statement to make but a very honest one and I think once I became of the age where I became cheeky where I became talkative where I became inquisitive that's when I became a problem and I think my biggest problem was that I was smart I could see you could see in my eyes what I was thinking and that was a problem for a time when so many secrets were kept, when so much was swept under the carpet. And if you spoke up, which I did again and again, um, you were the problem because you weren't going along with the status quo. So when it came to 12 and a half, my mother had convinced, well, she 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 created a circumstance in which I appeared to be the biggest problem that she had in her life by constantly focusing on me and picking on me and being violent and aggressive towards me. Not to her other children, but it became this almost like a war against me as a child because I wasn't one of hers. It's like, you know, 
if somebody's going to kick a dog, they'll probably kick somebody else's dog before they kick their own. And I think for me, I was black, so I was different again. So it was another, uh, I was further away in terms of humanity, really. Because remember, in those days, black people were perceived as being living in the jungle, being criminals, being crooks. There, was, there wasn't a lot of good black PR. There was a lot of demonization of black people. It still happens now, but in those days, it was so evasive, it was so all-consuming that even I didn't want to be black, you know. I was like, the first time black people came to Killy Beggs, my friend said to me, come down to town and we'll, um, there's, so, there's two black people. And I was like, I was 12 and I was like, oh, no, no, I don't think I will. And they said, oh, no, you got to come, you got to come. Now, that's because I was so apprehensive of black people because at that stage, the only black people I'd seen were Boney M, and people getting arrested on the news, people getting shot. People being lynched in films, and uh, and the first guy to be at by the dinosaur was always a black guy. So I didn't really want too much to do with this black thing, but I went with them, and we sat on the wall opposite the cafe, Melly's Cafe in Killybegs. Which, by the way, if you're ever up there, they do the best fish and chips in all of Ireland. It's a fishing port, so it's really fresh. But these two people, very elegant black people, were selling encyclopedias, and they'd come to the town to to to, to make sales. And as they as they came out of the cafe, all my friends who were with me. Uh, they saw them coming across the street and my friends started to chant Kunti uh, Kinte, Sambo, Gollywog. And I had this moment, I thought, well, what do I do? So I joined in. So I'm sitting there on the wall going to these two black people who are coming towards me. The woman is, is in the front and uh, she comes right up to me. And by the time she got there, all my friends have disappeared. They ran away, but I'm there going, Sambo, Sambo, Gollywog. <laughs> and she leaned down, and I'll never forget, because it was the first time I'd seen a black person close up. I remember her white of her eyes and her pink tongues really struck me because of the black skin. She was a beautiful looking woman, beautiful skin. And she looked down, she bent down, and she said to me, that's not very nice, especially coming from you. I ran home in tears and I looked in the mirror for the longest time. And that was the day, genuinely, that I realized, ah, okay, this is not like having red hair or glasses or anything. This is something different that I don't know anything about. And I did ask my mother years ago, why did you not mention Africa? And she said, oh, I didn't want to confuse you. So are you still in touch with that family? I am with my sisters. Yeah, my, 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 the, the members of the family who understand that I have a right to speak the truth about what happened to me in that family, I am, of course, in touch with. I love them dearly. But there's other members of the family who believe in the old way of you shouldn't speak ill of the dead and let it all go. And that's why this country ended up in the situation it was, because so many people did not want to confront what had yeah. happened to them. So then they sent you back that there was a decision made and they sent you back to mm. the orphanage. And I'm not going to get into the legals here because I imagine you were legally adopted. But you're oh, yeah, sent, yeah totally. like... it was the whole thing was a total. It was a totally illegal um, because <clears throat> she had decided that she didn't want me in the house in the home anymore. So they, they 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 manufactured this fake trial where me and 12 other children were taken to court. We were too young to go to court, so it wasn't legal, but they had a, what I'd probably call it a kangaroo court. So they set up the local t courthouse and they had us all come to the courthouse because we, as a unit, all the kids, we'd, we'd been stealing some things like running away from home so we'd steal a blanket or we'd steal cigarettes for the older boys. It was really nothing much, but when put in that context, they made it look like we were a gang of young criminals and we really weren't. But in order to have me committed to the care system, Peggy needed to create a situation in which I was 
appeared to be legally sent. Now, at the age of 12 and a half, you're, you can't be sent anywhere. But they had this court case, and I'll never forget it because um, uh, it was in the morning and there were so many people in the courthouse that they couldn't let everybody in because everybody in the town wanted to see this. So they were standing on the windows outside. So there were so many people standing on the windows outside that they had to turn the lights on inside. This is at 11 o'clock in the morning. And I remember standing in the middle of this crowded courtroom, dead center, in my in a little white bonine suit, which is this wool thing that I had from a Holy Communion or from a confirmation. And my mother said to me before the court, you must say, if the judge asks you if you want to go away, you must say yes. And I said, I don't want to go away. She said, no, you have to say yes. So I did what most kids would do, and I did what my mother told me. So when the judge got to the part where he asked me, did I want to go away, even though I was shaking my head, I said yes. And that's when they took me then and put me into the care system till I was 16. Wow. And that's, sorry. Yeah. But that that the trauma of that, now as an adult, I can see that, you know, on the day that a woman called Anne Gannon, who is a care worker in the orphanage in Salt Hill and Galway, um, she came in one day and with a with a, a, a plastic bag with um, some paints and a canvas in it. And she said to me, I hate you. You've been here six weeks and you haven't stopped crying. She said, I hate to see you like this. Um, I brought these. I thought it might cheer you up. What I didn't know then was that my mother was burning my letters to my sisters and she was burning my sister's letters to me. So I was so I went from the center of this big family community where everybody knew I was to silence. <clears throat> and that was very difficult. And that but but that was when I painted my first painting. And I remember as I finished it, I had this light bulb moment where I thought. I wasn't sad for 25 minutes. I wasn't lonely for 25 minutes. So that became the whole reason I painted for years it wasn't because of the finished product. It was to be, able, to be able to escape how I was feeling. And I think creative people understand that, that creativity is some, is some, there's something divine about creativity that means you're contributing something to the world that you can share with other people, that makes other people feel good about themselves. And I can think of no higher calling than that you know, that you create, because if there is a creator, then that was why you were brought here. And and creative people who cook, who sew, who make gratitude boxes, this is their way of giving back to the world. And the ripple effects that come the other way are extraordinary. It, it's, it's seismic, really, because there are so many people who do jobs where that's the dead end. But a creative person sees the effect of that moment they took to write the book, that moment they took to create the gratitude box. And they see it further down the line. It's like ripples on a beach coming back to them. And the gratitude for that act that they did is palpable. And I, I feel it sometimes with art. I have people sometimes who come into the studio and they stand in front of a painting and they cry. And at first I found it a bit odd, but then I realized that they were feeling something. And what they were feeling was my the energy that I took to create this thing that I was now sharing with them and that made them feel good. So that's where the painting started. But it's like, it's funny because I met you just before Christmas 23 and I, I, I was thinking, God, you know, I need to start thinking of my second season of podcast guests. And then I walked by your gallery and I was like, oh my god this is me like you see me i'm colorful mm. i love the bracelets and i walked in and i just thought i've been looking for a piece for my living room for so long mm. and i just art is so personal mm. you know and and i haven't it was like i was meant to be there now i have to manifest a painting i'm going to get one uh when i get some sort <laughs> of uh, manifest money in a painting it will come mm. i know it will mm. i know it will but just when i can afford a uh, kevin sharky piece a sharky piece 
but they are phenomenal. And like you even said it to me that day yourself. I was like, I love the color. I and you said, look, I don't even wear that much color. Mm. Like I'm, I mm. wear we, like. Where does the color and the inspiration, does it just come out of you? You said you don't even like art history. You're just mm-hmm. like, where? I, 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 I think that, um, I think people ask me all, all the time, what inspires you to paint? And I used to say a load of bills landing on the doormat. That usually gets me up off my arse. So I've got to go and paint because <laughs> I need to make some money. But really in truth, I think, you know, we are all, it's a strange thing to say, but we are literally all vessels. And I've met vessels full of negativity. I've met vessels full of gratitude. I've met vessels full of indifference. I've met vessels full of sarcasm. And when you realize that, you realize that a vessel is something that can be emptied. So change is never impossible. And a, and a vessel is something that can be filled up, which means change is always possible. And I think when I see, you know, like one of the one of the one of the things that struck me about you and your and your gratitude, uh, the whole message was that here was somebody who understood that it is possible to change the contents of the vessel. And that single thought is so powerful to people who don't think they can change because they've had negativity all their life. And I, the most negative people I meet are always the people most in need of gratitude. I love that you say that because you know what? You said that you started painting and it gave you that moment of 25 minutes of not crying mm-hmm. and of he- effectively healing. But I went back to creating Pause Penny when and the gratitude box when I was at the lowest of my low. Mm. So I had had to start practicing gratitude because I knew it was the only way to come out of it. And I think there's a couple different types of people. Somebody's going to recognize I'm responsible for myself. I'm the only person that's going to get me out of this hole. Or somebody else is just going to say, this is shit. This is, I remember my sister after the loss of the baby said, this is so unfair, Yvonne. You're such a good person. I was like, it's not unfair. This is life. This is my journey. But you know what? Like, it's hard and I, and I'm sad and Mm. I'm grieving, but I've got to find a way out. And look what I've created. It's given me so much more. And I never, like I'm a corporate lawyer, I would have never taken the plunge if it hadn't happened because I was happy. And, you know, Mm -hmm. in my job, I was happy. So it gives you something more, more meaning. I think it also gives you a very polarizing choice between loss and gain. You know, like when you lose something, when something doesn't go right, when something goes wrong, we think of it as it's gone wrong because that's the way we were taught. But actually, six months down the line, we look at it again and go, shit, I'm glad I told the boss to piss off. I'm glad I said no. You know, and and, and I think that, you know, I know I have a friend whose whose girlfriend is very, very, very negative and she cries all the time and she's, she's very unhappy. But... When I listen to her, when I hear her speak, what I hear is a focus on loss, a focus on what she doesn't have, a focus on what she thinks she should have. And all the time, she's living in a beautiful house. He loves her so much. He puts up with her. I, I couldn't put up with her. He, like, he loves her so much. <laughs> and, you know, he's he's given her safety. She has a lovely car. He puts her in charge of his projects. But she won't allow him in the kitchen. 
because she doesn't like the way he washes the cups. So, you know, this is a woman who needs to be slapped with gratitude on the, you know, every day because I can see very clearly that this the more she feels grateful for it, the more she has to be grateful for it. And people, it's, it's a really simple law. But if no matter where you are, and I've been in situations over the years, even when I was in the orphanage, you know, I had to find things that I was glad about. That's In those days at that age, it wasn't great gratitude. It was, what am I glad about? I'm glad I'm not in the older boys' orphanage. I'm glad that the brother who beats me has died or gone away or something. But, yeah. but you know, and, and I think... I learned very early on that in in life, shit happens. The only thing that defines it as being good or bad is how you perceive it. And that perception is the key to freedom. It's the key to everything. But you're you're talking about a kid, you know, that was given mm. up for adoption, only, you know, black child in mm. Donegal, then given back, you know, mm. this fake court trial. Like, where did this positive mindset even come from like how did you start to when did you start to recognize that hold on a second the way i think and perceive the world is what's going to happen in my life like how how did you get there because your kids like you know they say the brain the prefrontal cortex here develops by the time you're about 25 so it's forming all through those mm. formative years when you're a kid your positive emotions your ability to make decisions but you're just getting knocked down after knocked down. But I you think know? maybe maybe that that's the answer there, just what you've said. Because <clears throat> when you are treated unfairly and when your mother washes your sisters in bath water, then the dog, then you, you are being treated unfairly. And your worth as a human being, you know that this is a very strong psychological message to you as to what your worth is or isn't. When when your family tell you that the monkeys on the television are your real family and you're adopted, this is a level of psychological cruelty that has an effect on a child of making them retreat and retreat and retreat. And I remember one day when I was eight, my mother poured a pot of urine over my head and I was so traumatized and affected by it that I said to myself, it's the only time it ever happened, I literally turned around and said to myself, don't worry, I'm going to tell on them. That was the only power that I had in that moment because I was being, I was humiliated. I was a young boy trying to learn how to become a man. But this woman was reducing me to less than nothing. And I remember being shocked that, not that she would throw the urine at me, but that she would get it on a good carpet. That was me to be, whoa, she must be really angry because it didn't surprise me that she would have such a low opinion of me. So when you beat a human being down to such a degree that they are less than nothing, you better stand back because that child has nothing to lose and everything to gain. And that child can see all around it what negativity does and what hate and anger and fear does. And that child is not going to want any part of that. So the only alternative is... Kindness, hope, escape. And I think for me, creativity was always that. You know, we were talking about the, the gratitude thing and I, the most common thing I heard at school was, are you still, are you daydreaming? You pay attention, you're daydreaming again. Thank Christ I was f daydreaming because I knew then that algebra was a crock of shit. What the fuck am I going to do with algebra? Get out of here. Well, you need to pay. You or need someone to, to, to pay for your paintings. You need to add up those well, yeah, dollars well, that are going well, in your not, bank yeah, account but now. Not, but not not for me. Not for me. It, it, I think it's a left brain, right brain thing. And and I and also I I didn't like the people who were 
telling me they could teach me how to be an employee for the government because that's basically what the school system appeared to be to me was instead of when the teacher says what would you like to be when you grow up they should really say what job would you like to do for the government because when you say singer artist gratitude uh, healer they go Oh, no, 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 no. You want a secure job, somewhere where you can have a house that you can't really afford and a car that you can't really afford. But, you know, you'll be happier 50 years down the line. Really? Are you sure about that? So my thing was I used to sit at the back of the class practicing my autograph for when I was famous. This is according to my friends. Um, and daydream. And thank God I did because in that I learned that within myself there was the ability to choose positivity, kindness, gratitude, and all of those things which made me feel better about myself in that moment. And and art became a huge part of that because I, I used to be a chef, I used to be a songwriter. So all of those things that people can do that are about creating something out of nothing, the whole point of it is it's nothing until you share it with someone. And when you share it with something, someone, you can have a huge impact on their life just by the fact that you did. I say to people who think they want to write a book, you think they want to write a song, I say, yeah, wait, 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 you haven't done it yet. And you know what? You might not understand that there's somebody out there who's waiting for you to write that book, who needs to hear that song, who needs to see that painting. And we go, we look at it from a selfish point of view as well. I'm going to, I'm going to paint pictures someday. I'm going to, no, no, no. There's somebody out there who need, is waiting to be touched by your lyrics. Look at people like George Michael and Amy Winehouse and Whitney Houston. Three examples. Those three human beings contributed more to my life than any church, any government, any organization. And yet, in the world of the media, they're reduced down to, he's gay, She's a junkie. Da, da, da. And you're like, and the people who write about these gods, and technically for me they are because they've taken creativity to a huge level. Look at George Michael's voice. It's there forever. And the people who cut them down, what have they done other than be negative? And that's where you get the real sense in the media, especially about the inability. It, it thrives on fear. It has to be negative. Yeah, there was um, Steve Harvey, who's one of the mm. top black TV presenters in the U.S., told a story. I heard him on Oprah Super Soul Sunday how he was in sixth grade and his teacher said, I want everybody to write down. He had a bit of a stutter then as well. I want everybody to write down, she said, what you want to be when you grow up. And he wrote down, I want to be on TV. And she said, she said, I want Steve, little Stevie, I want you to come up here. And she, and she said, who do you think you are writing this mm. down? Who in this neighborhood is on TV? Who in your house is on TV? So she said, basically, you're being a smart aleck. I'm telling your mom mm. and telling your parents. He went home. He's like, oh, I'm going to get a whooping now for my dad. His mom said it to the dad and the dad said, why can't he? And he mm. said, look, go back in and tell her you want to be whatever it is. But I want you to keep this piece of paper mm. in your drawer and look at it every evening and every morning. And he was homeless. He left his, look, he, he made, he has some mistakes. We all do. Mm. Like he, he ended up being, he left his family to pursue his career. He was homeless for three years, but he believed, he believed that someday he was going to be on TV and look, it wasn't easy. But so, so when you go back to your paintings, right? When did you sell the first one? And what did you charge for your very first painting? Can you remember? Yes, I do. It was 250 euros. And it was to a lovely English lady who lived in St. John's Point in Killybegs. And uh, I was, she loved it. And uh, I, I, I'd only just started showing it to people. And when was because, that? What year was that? Can you remember? That was 30 years ago. Okay. Um, and I had been painting for years, but not letting anyone see them. So to bring them out in public was a very... 
it's a very big moment because you know men you know artists are like most artists if they're successful access sensitivity in their stroke in their music in their food and being a man being a sensitive man is not really wasn't an option when I was growing up and still to some degree people think you know men should just be men and they shouldn't have a sensitive side and art is a very pretty thing and you know I was a fisherman so you know telling my mates I was an artist that had taken the piss so I, I, I that wasn't just the reason I didn't show them I didn't really feel the need because I wasn't painting them to show to people I was painting them because I'd understood that there was some kind of healing in the creative process. I couldn't put my finger on it but I knew that it made me feel better about myself every time I applied to it. And it's still the same with cooking, you know, with setting up a gallery. Um, you are, it's aesthetics. And I think in life, we're, we're really all we're, all we're doing in life is rearranging molecules. You know, no matter what you do in life, you're pretty much just, and that's where I think the way in which you do it becomes hugely important because, you know, some people see an empty vessel and they say, oh, it's an empty vessel. They don't realize that every vessel can be full. And I think I got it very early on where, when I started to sell paintings, now I've sold over 10,000 paintings. It's never been done before. But because I'm self-taught, the establishment, they bless themselves when they hear my name. They're like, oh, not that man. man. <laughs> because they they want to tell you how to paint. They want to tell you how to sell your paintings. They want, And I'm like, whoa, I love the fact that I get to meet people who love my work from all around the world. And it doesn't matter. It's nice when they buy. It's lovely when they buy. But if they just appreciate what you do in priv privacy, it's 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 like a pat on the back. And it's a lovely thing for an artist to have because most artists are insecure. There's a, there's a song on Amy Winehouse's album and uh, they very cleverly left the, the thing she said at the end of the take in there. She sung a song and in one take, and it was, it was beautiful. And at the end, she's, there's a pause and she said, was that all right? And you're like, oh my God, how could you ask that question? And I think real artists always have that doubt and that's what pushes them to be better at what they and do. And what, what do you think makes the difference between like somebody that can charge, it, it's putting aside the art, but the mindset, because what I feel like with say like kids growing up, everybody, you know, you hear it, I want you to be a doctor, I want you to be a lawyer, I want you to be a dentist. There's there's rarely this like, I want you to be a singer, an actor, mm. or if they do say it, parents would be like, you can't make money doing that. Like, what would you say to people that say, but I can't make money making art? Well, like, that statement tells me that you won't. Yeah. You know, and, and I don't have the time. Well, paint faster. Like, people are great at making excuses as to why they're not doing what they think they should be doing. In truth, they're doing what they want because sometimes they're just vegging out in front of Coronation Street because that's what they want. But they think they should have something that they should be doing. And I think I got asked when a painting of mine sold for 50,000, I got asked by a journalist. Um, they said to me, we saw you painting that picture and it only took you 12 and a half minutes. What makes you think that your 12 and a half minutes of your time is worth 50,000? And I said to him, well, what makes you think that an hour of your time is worth a journalistic wage. Who told you your value? Who told you that's what you were worth? Never let a man, and I include women in this, put your value on you because they will tell you you're worth this. No, you want to do that job, you're worth this. The minute you do that, you've lost the understanding that you are an extraordinary, 
human being. And there is nothing on the planet that comes close to a human being. And yet we are from a very early age forced into these narrow pathways to be this, to be that, to do the job for the government. And in, in it, we lose the magical ability to understand that manifestation is the only thing that you should concern yourself with. It's the only thing that matters because if you're not, if you're not filling the vessel with positive good things, someone else will come in and fill it with their, their bad day they're having, the problems they're having. Oh, this went wrong today. And I say to people all the time, be very careful if something goes wrong. Don't make it the subject of your conversation every day to everyone because you're just, you're bringing more and more. Oh, this happened to me. Oh, it's terrible. It's terrible. No. Try and tell one person and then move on. Be, be, be happy that you've, you've gotten it out of your system, but do not make it your mantra because that's what brings in all the negativity. And I think people sometimes, the school system doesn't teach us this. Yeah, it's funny. I was actually asked, I've been asked twice now to speak at boys' schools mm -hmm. about manifestation and the power of believing in your mind. It just has, like, I, I'm going to do it. I really would love to go to schools because I think it starts with our kids and what we're saying. It's like we're teaching, I don't know, girls typically like home economics, how to cook. And like for me personally, I'd rather know a bit more about the brain and mm. neuroscience and the mindset. And I was even thinking this morning, I have four kids, you know, one's five, a two and a half year old and twins that are one. And every single morning I say what I'm grateful for. I ask the five-year-old, I say it to the two and a half year old and then I'll help her out and she'll repeat it. Then we do affirmations. And then I turn on music because mm. I think, I have got to turn off the news. You have to resist the idea that these people have anything other good for you other than to convince you of something or sell you something. And that's where I think that creative people have an edge there because they, they turn it off. You know, you can't watch EastEnders and paint a painting. You can't come up with the ideas you do and be tuned to the radio. So I get it. And music is music is really important. Really important. I, I really agree with that. I actually was listening to another one of Oprah's podcasts and she was talking to a guy who said, um, what is it? Left side's logical, right's the creative. Mm. And, and he was saying that he thinks that the creative people are the ones that are going to be basically like in the top of their game now and into the future because all the logical side is being automated. So mm. like, you know, we can automate like making contracts for lawyers mm. or AI is coming out, but you're not going to be able to get a robot to paint a sharky painting. Well, funny you say that because a friend of mine asked this AI, um, could you paint me a painting in the style of Kevin Sharkey? And, uh, <laughs> oh, it was horrible. But it, but 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 what was interesting about it was it, bear, it bore no relation to what I do. And uh, I I thought, you know, like people worry, oh, but what happens if this, you know, you, you've learned <laughs> that if something ends, that life is a series of chapters and that in order for a chapter to start, it has to end. And we don't always agree with the, the beginning and the ending of the chapters, but one thing's for sure, there will be another chapter. And I think that's what people who've been through loss understand, that it'd never be, you know, perfect, but there are, there there is momentum. They say people are most happy when they feel a sense of, of, of moving forward and being fulfilled. And I think that, you know, that I got asked a while ago by, I think it was the Sunday Times in the UK, they said to me, Mr. Sharkey, uh, I hate when they call me Mr. Sharkey. Um, <laughs> they said, uh, I feel like I'm in trouble or something. But they said, uh, uh, can you tell us who are your favorite artists? And I said, oh, that's easy. Yeah, the rich ones. I said, because I couldn't give a damn about what the broke ones are doing because the rich ones have found a way to monetize their passion. And I have the greatest admiration for that because there is an art to making 
money. What are what are your beliefs around money? Like, what was it like as a kid? Did they have money? Was it like, oh, we're broke or poor or whatever? Like, what are your beliefs now about money that like somebody that wants to be in the creative space, they're mm. a singer, they're an actor, they're an artist, and they're like, like you said, we can't say, oh, I'm never going to make any money at this. But like, what are your beliefs around money? Well, if anyone says I'm always broke, they always will be. Yeah. And you don't have to go around convincing anybody of <clears throat> when and how you're going to be rich. But I think you have to be open to daydream about the possibility that there is something out there beyond the daily drudge of going to work, having an asshole of a boss who drives you crazy, who doesn't appreciate you, who gives you no praise. Even then, daydreaming is an escape. And, and I think that a lot, I say to friends sometimes if they feel stuck is get a pen and a piece of paper and write down 10 possibilities that you could do, 10 things that you think, you know what, I could go to, I could climb a mountain, I could uh, have, dye my hair. And the minute they start doing that, the first thing that happens is they realize, oh, hang on, okay, so I've got some choices here. And choices are the first step on the ladder. And Oprah said once, um, the most common thing she sees is people who haven't decided where they want to get to, what the destination is. I always wanted to be the most successful at whatever I did. And I kind of, you know, you say I kept the sharky name. Yes, I did, because that was always going to be the only revenge that I was going to have was to have. And as a child, I used to think, well, eventually my name is the one they're going to remember. And that was the only, because I, I couldn't talk back to my mother, I couldn't be aggressive, but I had a sense of, what's the word, unfairness at the way I was treated, and it, it lit a fire under me. So my, my when we grew up, it was famine or feast. My dad was, a, a my adopted dad was a, an inventor, so we went from having nothing to having everything, but it was would go up and down. And so it taught me that well, even when it all went, it came back. I was homeless about 10 years ago, and... One of the things I learned during then... Your, during your career as an artist? Yeah, yeah. I made about four and a half million selling paintings and then the crash happened and then I went... I used to live in my galleries and then I suddenly didn't have anywhere and it was overnight almost. And it wasn't for a long period, but it was long enough to teach me that... But where did the four and a half million go, Sharky? Oh, what did you do with it? Come great, on. I had a great bloody time. <laughs> I had a fantastic time. I travelled the world. I stayed in all the best hotels. I actually invested most of it in myself as an artist. I opened galleries. I bought canvases. I never stopped investing in myself. And I think this is why when people talk about the money, I say, well, it was never really about the money. It was more about the adventure and the excitement and the bravery and the success, which comes from all those things and focus and focus and focus and so, focus. So where were you, were you homeless? Do you live in Dublin? The no, you're in Dublin. No, no, no. I was only for, it was only for a short period. And I, they put me into a hostel down in Amien Street, a cross care hostel. And I was there for was there for about a month. And then I got a place in Balbriggan. So it was short, but it was it was a moment when I realized that if when you lose everything, you never ever fear about losing everything again because you know what it's like. People who have everything, that's their worst nightmare. What would happen if I lost my money? What would happen if I lost my house? Do you think that's house? why people lose it? Someone asked me this. They said, I feel like I manifest something and then I lose it. And why am I losing it? And I'm saying you're not in alignment with it anymore. You're, mm. you're, you're, you have fear and a doubt kicks in. Like, why do you believe you lost it? Like, do you think there's anything to do with the mind there? Um, no, I, do, I, think, I think probably because I was an artist and artists really are not, they don't do what they do for the money. If they can get the money, that's great. It allows them to continue being an artist, but they do it because they need to express themselves. They need to find acceptance. They need to bring beauty into the world. 
I mean, that's that's probably the most valuable thing that I do. I create these paintings that people value in a way they don't even value the cars. Like they buy a car, they get rid of it. They buy another, they get rid of it. Art, they put on the wall, they love it for their lives and they leave it to their favorite child. That tells me that there's something of the artist's energy which endures beyond. I met a woman yesterday, she came in the gallery and she said she bought a painting at an auction from a guy who died. It was one of mine. And I thought, wow, she loves it. She has it on her wall. He's dead and gone. I can't even remember who he was. But the painting is now on her wall. And she loves it. And her children love it. And I think the school system does not tell us the importance of creativity because creativity is what made the world. And without the ability to daydream, without the ability to imagine something other than this horrible situation or this awful, painful moment, that's why we that's why we're so incredibly magnificent, because we can raise the frequency of our being above and beyond the pain, above and beyond the trauma. And that's what I think I've been really successful at because I had to, because I couldn't go the other way, which would be to become negative, sarcastic, angry. But you just there, you just said, okay, so you've actually sold paintings for 250 mm. back in the day. Mm. And now they're up, like, what? Okay, 35,000. What's, what's the most expensive painting? 65,000 I sold one for. But you know, the, the people say like, well, why? You see, yeah, where did you get the confidence to say, fuck this, like I'm not selling you a painting for 250, I'm I'm charging 60 grand. Well, like, to be where, honest where with you, where did that come from? To be honest with you, after, after 10,000 people buy your paintings, you know that you have something that people want. Yeah. And then as you get older, you realize that the value of art is above and beyond many, many things. So I, it's a real for me, you know, I felt like zero at times as a child. I felt like my worth was nothing. And I remember my mother said to me one day, she said, I saw you walking down the town today with your head held high. What have you got to hold your head high about? And I thought, ah, you'll see. And that was my own inner dialogue about I am not the worthless person that you think I am. And I will spend all of my time proving you wrong. Yeah. And I think when I price my work, it's always priced at A, what you know you can achieve for it, but also as I get older, it becomes less necessary to make a living at it because you're 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 doing well. And and our, a lot of artists come from the real world where they say, you know, they make a painting and they say 500 quid, whoa, my mother would think that's a lot of money. But we, But if you weren't brought up in the world of art, it's like women and men in terms of trying to understand both at the same time because the people who do love art and buy art and have art, their budgets, their houses, their outlook, their background, their culture, their heritage is so different that the value they put on something is so different to the maker because the maker is the manufacturer. You know, the, the artist knows I paid this for the canvas, I paid this for the paint, so therefore, okay, so should I sell it for that or should I sell it for more? or should I dare to go beyond the glass ceiling of what my teachers, parents, society tells me I'm worth and say, you know what, that's what I want. And when I did that, and I've done it repeatedly, when they've said, okay, I'll buy that, I've gone, wow. You know, because because it takes a leap into, it takes a leap into imagination to do that. But when you see it, when you see it becoming, when you see it manifesting, in other words, when you see it materializing, you say, 
okay, I'm going to do that again. In fact, maybe the next time I'm going to put it even higher. I think it's so funny that you say this because when I went into Sharky's gallery, just the most amazing art, which I'm telling you now, folks, I am going to have a painting in my house. I don't know when, but I will. Mm. I will. Because uh, I love it. Actually, my, my most favorite art I've ever seen is yours. Oh, that's like, lovely. I, it's Thank most you. favorite ever. You have to check this guy out. It's just unbelievable. But anyway, you said to me, your manifestation and gratitude boxes, you mm. need to raise the prices. Yes. And honestly, I was losing out on postage, on VAT, on everything. And they're not that expensive. So that day, I mm. went home. And I was like, shit, shit, shit. So I called my IT guy. I was like, listen, I didn't put them up that much. It was like four euro each on both of them, right? I, I told you you should double Immediately, this. you told me double. Immediately, mm. six sales came in within an, like uh. half an hour. Like, and that doesn't happen to be that quickly. Well, you, remind me, <laughs> you, like... remind, you remind me of that, that L'Oreal slogan, which says, I'm worth it. Because technically, when you sell yourself for less, you're really saying, I'm not worth it. And I think this is where I think we've all been tricked into the minimum wage, a manager's wage, a waitress's wage. And I like, get the hell out of here. You live your life to those values and those prices and those wages if you want. I, on the other hand, I'm going to daydream and manifest what I think I'm worth. And that's the biggest problem a lot of people have. But that's the power of the mind. Mm. Manifestation is your thoughts, feelings and beliefs. What you believe mm. what you know like i already know sitting in this chair i can see your painting in my living room i know i'm gonna get one do you know do you yeah, know yeah, what i mean yeah, yeah. and i know my pause penny boxes i have people in my mind i can see them in their hands but that's that belief like you doing your autograph in the classroom saying i'm gonna be famous it's an mm. inner knowing but you also have created something that that you've taken time and energy over that you've used your design skills that you've used your knowledge your experiences and 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 you know the value of those uh those little boxes to somebody who really really needs to understand that gratitude is all they should be engaging in is infinite it's in it, you know you could be helping managers of companies waitresses doctors it doesn't matter the point is what you're what you put into those boxes isn't just you didn't just make a product that's cost you this so therefore i should charge this no the value is not even in the materials, the value is in the mental connection. And the experience. Yes. Knowing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I've had people contact me all the time. Like, I just even got a review yesterday. It's like, this is actually life-changing. It mm. makes so much sense. I'm like, I know. But that's all my... And it's funny, like, that you say, because when I created the manifestation box, the seven steps that you need to take... Um, I always remember people saying, like, say, for example, an artist, oh, the art just comes through me, or I just sat down and the words of the book came. Mm. But that's how the manifestation box is created. I literally sat down. I was like, I need to provision a couple of hours to figure out what the seven steps are. Two minutes, I had them written down. I was like, this is it. You know, we all get in the way of ourselves. We like, we, you know, we, what we think, I want to write a book. So we sit down at the computer or the keyboard and we start, and then the, suddenly we're an author. Suddenly we're, we're thinking with somebody else's brain. There are people in this world who, who, who do want to write a book and who could write a book. The only difference is they're not writers. So a lot of them, especially the Irish, are very good talkers. And I wrote my book because I was able to talk it. I wrote the chronological order of all the important points from birth to present day. And I talked through it with some friends over a week period. They recorded it. And it flowed so much better. It sounded so much like me because when I sat at the keyboard, I sounded like Enid Blyton. 
you know, suddenly you're trying to be a, a writer. And I think that there's, there, there is that thing with humans where they get in the way of themselves because people say, well, I can't draw, therefore I can't be an artist. That's not true. But when someone said to me years ago, do you think you paint like this because you can't draw? I said to them, well, I'd never really tried to draw. So I got a piece of wood, a big piece of wood and a picture of my dog and a piece of charcoal. And I spent six and a half hours in front of this piece of wood and I drew the most beautiful reproduction of the photograph. And when I, when I finished it, I cried because I was so moved because first of all, I didn't know I could do that. Secondly, I'd never done that before. And thirdly, I thought I never want to spend six and a half fucking hours doing anything again because it would drive <laughs> me crazy. So I went back to painting the way I paint. But now I have Picasso collectors. Um, uh, one Francis Bacon collector bought 20 paintings on me last year. And these guys, when you speak to them and you say, why did you buy my work when you can afford anything you want? And they all say the same thing. I've never seen anything like it before. So to them, that's what makes it important. Because if I'd gone to college, I'd paint like technique you can teach to 100 people, but they'll all paint the same bowl of fruit. I didn't have any influence. I didn't have anybody telling me what to do. So I was able to develop what turned out to be my own style without even knowing that's what I was doing. But I feel like you're an outlier in everything. Like you do what you want to do the way you want to do mm -hmm. it. You say what you want to say when you say and maybe that's the you're you know i think that one of the key words for 2024 has got to be authentic and just being speak yourself your truth and don't be afraid i know you call other people that you want to speak to that you want to be with and the hardest thing for human beings to accept i think a lot of the time is that life is not always the way you think it should be but sometimes it's the gratitude for how it is that creates the change totally one one hundred percent now, you have two questions left. Mm. They're easy ones for you. Okay. Who are you grateful for? Me. Good answer. Me. That's like, who, who said that at the Oscars or something? I want to thank myself. Snoop Dogg. Oh, it? Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, no, absolutely. Christ. Are you kidding me? I mean, you know, what I've done with my life, with my my lack of education, with my... Someone said to me not so long ago, oh, you're, you've just taken every opportunity that's come to you. And I said, yeah. And that's why I'm grateful for me because, you know, I, I maybe because of the low expectations of me as a child, um, I, I wanted to confound them. And I've done that. And it's a lovely feeling to know that I'd never had a teacher, never had a benefactor, never had rich relatives. Well, I opened a gallery in London a couple of weeks ago. So all that I have done, I've done myself by getting up every morning, by focusing on my talent, by extending the reality of where I was to where I want to be, again, the manifestation. And that's why I, I absolutely, I'm my, I'm my favorite person in the whole world. <laughs> I think that's like the best answer I've ever gotten on. My husband was listening to one the other day and he was like, she was grateful for her dog. This one, I was like, mm. and then I get grateful. I love that because it's so true, you know, like. Well, without me, I wouldn't be here. Yeah, you without know, I'd your have mind. Been, I'd have been told you're too black, you're too damaged, you're too, you know, and, and, and that's why I think human beings, you know, this whole distraction of the media and all that, it just takes them away from their own magnificence. And I, I genuinely mean that, you know, that, that, that we have the biggest crime against us as human beings is that we've been limited by other people's perception of who we are, what we should be and what we're worth. But we're we're afraid of judgment as well. You know, like we're... You know, oh, I don't know, what will people, I, I even see it myself, you know, like I'm on now, I find that the best platform for me personally uh, for the selling of the boxes is actually LinkedIn. Mm. It's really strategic, you know, 
but I'm a corporate lawyer and I'm talking about manifestation and I feel like, oh, but you know what I've realized? It's all the lawyers that are reaching out to me. Mm-hmm. Hey, how do I do this? I wanna, yeah. I'm not sure you're you're going down another path. You're really brave, but there is still that part of you that's like, oh, I wonder what other people But whose think. voice is that? Yeah, it's your own at the end of the and day. And sometimes it's your parents. Sometimes it's the church. Sometimes it's your teachers telling you, no, 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 leave that alone. Don't, don't, you know. I do TikTok videos. I get two million views in three months. And a friend of mine says, oh, stick to the painting, stick to the painting. But he doesn't understand that that's my opinion. And I, I don't want, I don't care. I'm not looking to be liked. I'm trying to help people become aware. And in awareness, we all make better choices, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I've watched those. You get loads of comments because the reality is um, you're not sitting on the fence. You're choosing your side. Which and is, if yeah. you're being controversial, which not controversial, I mean, like, if you have a strong opinion mm. and but, you're backing it up and you're not afraid those negative little comments and you're like, mm-hmm. well, whatever, I'm going to go say what I want to say. You know, people, your tribe will follow you. Who yeah. wants to listen? Well, also, also, there's the presumption that people are aligned with one particular political theory. They're not always, and sometimes they agree with you. But the but the, the thing about it is, when you speak your mind, when you speak your truth, you're doing something that the people who are going to criticize you haven't yet done. You don't know what they think. You've been brave enough to say, this is what I believe. This is what I think. And they go, oh, you're crazy. You're wrong. You're, whoa. What do you think? Because if you knew what they thought, you might think they were feckin' crazy and wrong as well. But you've put yourself out there by saying, this is what I believe. It, it, my amount of years on this planet, I'm taking in to, lots of things into consideration. And guess what? I've come to a conclusion. And that's my conclusion. You can't take it away from me. You can't tell me what my conclusion should be. And that's why I think people need to be less fearful of criticism and less fearful of other people's condemnation because where the hell are these people going to be in five years, 10 years time? You won't even remember their names. Yeah, totally. And our final last question, what are you manifesting now? Like, what do you want or what do you see in your life? What's next for Sharky? Chickens, vegetables, (laughs) (laughs) Um, countryside, um, homemade wine, um, uh, a life beyond daily work. Um, but also, I love to work. I love to paint. They asked me not so long ago, what, what, what age would you retire at? And I said, why the hell would I retire? I love what I do. I'd only retire from a job I didn't like. So now I have, I, I do think about, I, occasionally I'll go on to, this is what I suggest people do too, go on to a website that, that has properties in, say, Spain or Greece or something and have a look around. You might not have the money to buy it now, but you're putting the first oh, rung I've already done on that. the ladder. Absolutely. And then you say, well, no, not, not that area, maybe this area. But in the back of the mind, that's why I buy paintings of children. They're so surprised. I go to the houses and then there's always a couple of kids and they say, which one's the artist? There's always one. I said, can I see your paintings? And they bring them out and you say, wow, they're very, very nice. Um, have you signed them? What's your name? And they say, Emily. Goes, okay, so Emily, you need to sign everyone and your name and the year and then you need to give them a name and you need to give them a price. So they look at you like this. So they sign one. So they say, okay, can I buy this one from you? And there's a, there's a moment to pause and they look at the mother and say, and I say, well, I'll give you 10 euros for it. And they're like, and the minute you do that, you know that you're putting the first step into a ladder that that child now understands I can do something of value that, that no one has taught me. Brilliant. Mm, I've got loads of kids' paintings. That and is they immediately see that, wow, I can make money making art because that's what I never had. So I love the fact that you're putting the first building. And some of them, the ne- honestly, the next thing you see the little buggers, they've got 20 paintings they want to sell you <laughs> and they're pulling them out of the cupboards and everything. But that's exactly why I do it. And that 
See, so I was thinking this morning, just we're going to end on this, but I was thinking I was to- told you that like I practice gratitude and affirmations with my kids. And mm. I was thinking I really need to bring in visualization, but they're, they're, they're a little bit too young, you know, five, two and a half and one. But then I thought, hold on a second. I'm already doing it because on the way to school every morning, uh, I tell them a story and the story is about anything and everything. There could be dragons, witches or whatever. Mm. A lady one day was behind me and she said, uh, excuse me, ma'am, by any chance, do you have a YouTube kids channel? <laughs> I was mm. like, no. But I was very dramatic with the kids, but they're able to see it in their minds, right? They're able to see and visualize. And that's the first step. But then taking it on to the entrepreneurial shift. What are their names? So my oldest boy is Hovan. He means a gift from God. Uh-huh. So I had three miscarriages and then I had him. Then we have Penelope, who's uh-huh. Paw's Penny. She's the Penny in Penelope. Uh-huh. And then we have Savan, and he's an Armenian name. So he's a twin. And Valentine, Val. Will you tell them for me that they need to visualize, draw what they're visualizing, draw what they're grateful for, and the next time I see them, I'll buy a painting off each of them. All right? <laughs> yeah, because I told you, I was like, you're going to have to. Okay, so you know in the manifestation box, there's an action step. So mm. I'm going to write down that I want a Kevin uh, Sharkey painting, right? And the action step is just going into the gallery, looking at them, mm. you know, because it's going to mm. happen for me someday. But I'm going to have you over, and I'm going to let you look at the wall, and you're going to say, I see it here. You know, mm. we see it here. And that'll be an action <laughs> step. And like you said, looking up your villas. Great. Yes, absolutely. Because we know it's going to happen. Yes. <laughs> thank you so no, much. No, no, thank you. You thank are you. so kind for giving up, not all, giving not up your time. And I think you are going to inspire so many creative people to just go out and get it and believe mm. in themselves. Because the reality is... Anyone can manifest somebody who was an orphan, adopted, and has been homeless. Mm. And his- well, some people think some people think it's about acquiring confidence, and I tried that for years. And the thing with being confident is some days you are, some days you're not. And then it dawned on me that it isn't about acquiring confidence; it's about not being afraid. Life is so short, and opportunities are so few and far between that what's fear? I mean, literally, what is it? It's what could go wrong. And I think maybe that was the thing for me. I feared my mother. I've never feared anything like that. So it it reset my buttons. And now I feel that, that, you know, not being afraid is the most powerful tool that you have for whatever it is you want to do. Sorry, last question, because I think Mm. people are going to want to know this. Your real parents, Mm. did you ever meet them? Yes, Gay Byrne on The Late Late Show was interviewing me one night and he said to me, "Um, your mother's Irish. I said, yeah, and he said, shh. He said, have you ever met her? I said, no. And he said, but she could be watching us right now. And she was. She was at home with her husband of 22 years who she didn't know. He didn't know she'd had me. She had, had two half brothers. And she um, she called the Sharkies the next day and said, I'm Kevin's mother. Um, can I meet him? And I went did to meet Did she name her. you? Yes, she did. She gave me my first name, which is why I don't like being called Kevin, because when I finally found her 37 years, she pretty much told me to piss off. So I thought, well, you know what? You can have your name back, too. <laughs> so okay. Sharky's a much better name for a painter than Kevin. Kevin sounds like a hairdresser. So it wasn't a good... <laughs> no, no, no. And it was sad, but, but you know, it was, it was an, a chapter ending, which meant that another one couldn't begin. So while it was sad in the moment, it was the beginning of understanding that Closure, you don't maybe? yeah yeah you don't always well, get you know the what? result you want. I'm going to have to get the book when's the book out oh I don't know yet it's been edited at the moment but um, it's called It's the Devil Himself which it's... is what my mother used to say when I walked into the room when I was a kid <laughs> <laughs> well I think we're all going to want to read this book because it's just you are fascinating Sharky <laughs> thank you, you are fascinating. thank you so much you're very welcome I have welcome. to get back to the gallery mm-hmm. I have to get back to the kids so thank you you're, you're welcome